0: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. government.
1: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Today we are teaming with the Mad Scientist podcast the Convergence. We'll be talking with General Brito, Mr. Ian Sullivan, and Mr. Rich Creed about warfighting, understanding our threat. Let's dive into this topic. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Becker from the Breaking Doctrine podcast.
2: And I'm Matt Sandisberg from Mad Scientists, the Convergence podcast. Today, we'll be talking about understanding the threat our adversaries present and how important that is to military professionals.
1: When Matt and I first talked about developing a podcast episode together, I wanted to lead off with Doctrine, and especially highlight threat doctrine produced by the TRADOC G2 that focuses on how our potential adversaries are likely to fight.
2: And here at the Convergence podcast, we talk a lot about technology and innovation, but we wanted to take a step back and show how doctrine is so fundamental to any change, technology, and implementation of that technology within the U.S. Army.
1: Today we welcome to our episode General Gary Brito, Commanding General of the Training and Doctrine Command, or
3: TRADOC. Lisa, good morning. Good morning. And thank you so much, Matt, as well. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today. I enjoy anything, any opportunity I have, one, talk to soldiers, uh, whether virtually or in person. And uh, all about this. this is a great topic to talk about today, Army profession.
1: We also welcome Mr. Ian Sullivan, Deputy Chief of Staff Intelligence the TRADOC G2.
0: Thanks, Lisa and Matt. Always appreciate doing these podcasts, especially when I get to talk about the threat.
1: And finally, we welcome Colonel Retire Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD.
4: Lisa, Matt, thanks for having us. It's great to be doing a podcast again after a little bit of a hiatus.
2: Absolutely. It's great to have you all here. So let's go straight into today's big idea, which is competence inside the Army profession includes understanding the threat you face. So, gentlemen, why is this big idea important for our Army today? And, General Brito, let's start with you.
3: You know, Matt, our doctrine works. And I'll go back to something I learned as a cadet, obviously, and then OBC and on. It starts with the enemy. Paragraph one is paragraph one for a reason, and it drives a lot of our thought processes and how we execute things. So tied to the aspect of competence, and you can clearly link that into the Army profession, and I would say even bigger, uh, understanding the threat enables a lot of things. How we operate, uh, everywhere from the individual level up to the collective level. How our Army as, as a big enterprise may modernize. How we see the threat, both in a near term and a far term, which is very important as well, especially with the speed of uh, technology today. And then closer to the fence, or I would say down in the Dirty Boots level and the Centers of Excellence here within TRADOC, and of course even AIT and both of our lieutenants is educating them at every level, every echelon on the threat. And you can weave that back to paragraph one and understanding, understanding our enemy capabilities and That does require a level of competence, and I I won't get geeky on you, but that can be at any echelon, you know, lieutenant learning this or private learning this and a captain or sergeant major learning something else. But that can be applied to how we fight as an Army, and it should be. So the competence through our professional education, um, opportunity training at the Bradley Table 8 range or anything, you can focus on building a level of competence at every level, all three components, all ranks, on the enemy threat and what it can do so that we maintain overmatch with it, and that's critical. And I think it's getting even more tough with the speed of technology, with our adversaries working to have uh, overmatch over us. I don't want to steal all the, ma- all the mic time, but bottom line, building that grit and muscle and, and the competence of understanding enemy threat is a, key, is, is a key thing for our United States Army to maintain its overmatch. Again, I'll share some time with my peers. There's some other thoughts I have on it as well. Mr. Creed?
4: Yeah. um, So to build on General Berto's point, right, I think we're all, to some extent, prisoners of our experience in in our early formation. So General Berto talked about being a cadet and learning, uh, in our case, the Soviet uh, threat. And then that continued in uh, what we would call the basic officer leaders course now, the captain's career course. I mean, you had to memorize. Uh, enemy weapon systems, the rate of movement, how the units were organized and so forth. And uh, it it just was part of the cultural norm. Well, there was a reason for that, right? It was a baselining so that everyone had some level of familiarity. Um, And I think there were branch peculiar ways uh, of doing that in the old days. When we prepare to do operations, when we conduct the operations process, when we're doing the military decision-making process, uh, we talk about gathering the tools, um, and people, when you're a lieutenant or, or a sergeant, you're saying, well, i got to bring my overlays, and I've got to get my, my pens and my references and my running staff estimates and all those things. But the people are, are tools, too, and what the people bring to the table, particularly when you're in, under conditions of discomfort and you don't have the luxury of sitting in an air-conditioned, well-lit room, and, and you're trying to solve a problem, maybe under great stress, uh, and you're tired, Um if you don't have a certain common baseline there, I think you're at a disadvantage. And you put a burden on other people in that group of people trying to solve the problem. And typically, we put the burden on the, on the intelligence officers. and so we say, well, S2, tell me this, that, and the other thing. Well, if the S2 has to explain every little thing to everybody on the staff, uh, as opposed to everyone coming in at, at, at some level. You know, The armor officer is being expert in the enemy maneuver formations, same thing with the infantry officer or the artillery officer and enemy fires, air defense. One of the most impressive things I think I ever remember uh, as a company grade or field grade officer was having your assistant brigade engineer run through how fast the Krasnovians, which was just a retooled Soviet model, right, how fast they could dig tank tre- uh, ditches and uh, put in a triple strand concertina and, and minefield barriers because that was important to know, right, how much time you had to get things done. So, and, and even uh, things like armored vehicle ID for the tank crew gunnery skills tests and so forth. I mean, that was the reason we have That is the expectation was you had to understand the difference between enemy and friendly because uh, fratricide would be a risk, right? So I think those things all make this really important.
0: All right, let me add a couple of points here. I um, agree with everything that's been, been said so far, but I, I, I kind of want to – take it in a slightly different direction as well. Um, There's something known as Tennyson's reason why, and really that's what the threat is. It's the reason why we do everything in the Army. Why do we need to recruit a force? Because we have to have a force that's capable of defeating a threat. Why do we need a certain piece of kit so it can defeat the adversary's kit, right? Why do we need to design a force with, you know, the units that we have because they have to be capable of defeating the adversary's way of war. The threat's literally the reason why to everything we do uh, within the Army. It's everything that we do across Dot and it's certainly everything we do, do within TRADOC. Now, um, I, wanna, I wanna add on to a couple of things that, that Rich said. Um, he talked about understanding the way we used to understand the Soviets, and I think that's a, that's a great point. We're also in this strange era of transition where we have folks like us sitting at this table who, who can remember some of that and, you know, grew up thinking about uh, what the full the gap would look like or, um, you know, what, what the fight against that, that Red Army would be. Then we sort of had this period where we transitioned away from it, and then 9-11 happens and we, we completely change pace. Well, during that same period, our adversaries never stopped thinking about what it would mean to defeat us. And what we've seen is a threat that has taken the time, effort, and energy to think about modernization in a way that's, that's quite significant. They're modernizing everything they do in terms of materiel, in terms of people, and in terms of approach to war and doctrine. So they're thinking long and hard about creating a force that's designed to, to essentially meet ours on a field of battle and, and defeat us. Now, we've not had the same time to think about it because we've been engaged in uh, counterinsurgency, right? Places like Iraq, Afghanistan, North Africa, um, parts, of, parts of, of Southeast Asia, but the adversary never stopped. And so the, the institutional knowledge of how to deal with that kind of fight sits with, with people like us in, in this room right now. So we need to be able to take all of this to a new generation of soldiers and leaders who are gonna be the ones who, if, if the balloon goes up, has to deal with it. And if they don't understand the threat, if they don't understand how the adversary thinks, how they think about warfare, and then how they put warfare into practice, we'll be at a significant disadvantage. Um, I'll also say that when you look at the pacing threat in particular, their modernization effort is like nothing that I have ever seen. It is rapid, it is substantial, and it is dynamic. And they're creating a force that is, is really designed to take us on and in their minds defeat us. Now some of what we've seen with that pacing threat is that their modernization um, window is, is inside of our own. So they're gonna have some better kit than us if, if something happens say in the next 10 years our best edge are our people, particularly if it's inside the modernization window. And the start point to get those people ready is to make sure that they understand the threat, how they think, how they fight, and what they think about warfare. Um, because if we don't if we don't have that, we throw away the most important advantage that we have, our people. One of the
4: things that we found is people's eyes start glazing over sometimes when the old guys are telling the, the young men and women, uh, the leaders of today, you know, all the war stories about how we used to do things, and, and, and we don't, then we make it sound like some golden era, right? That, you know, everybody was doing everything right, when, and we all know that that wasn't the case. Um, but I think there should be the ability to take some comfort. Like, we did pay very close attention to threats in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? We learned counter ID tactics, we learned what the enemy tactics were. Um, and then you spent a lot of time before you rotated over somewhere learning from the unit that was in you're going to be your assigned area of operation. You remember, sir, when we went to our MRX and we had people there that were actually telling us what Bakuba was like and and so forth. Um, So it's not like we completely stopped doing it. Um, We were doing it uh, during the wars in CENTCOM, and we're still doing it in, in the wars in CENTCOM. It's just... I think it's more of a challenge now because we can't focus on one thing, one group of portfolio of of tactics and capabilities, to your point, that there's so many different adversaries out there in so many different
3: contexts. That's a great point, Rich.
1: I know you don't want to talk about the past, sir. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want to get your experiences, you know, kind of what the culture was, when you guys were growing up in the Army or what your um, experiences were, Mr. Sullivan, you know, pre-911. Could you give some specific examples of when you were a lieutenant or a captain of what understanding the threat meant? So maybe we can yeah. talk about, you know, what that looks like today.
3: If my peers won't mind, I'll, I'll go ahead and start and uh, I don't know if you're inferring I'm old. I like to say seasoned. <laughs> uh, like, so you're wiser. Seasoned, a little bit wiser, should I say. Uh, first assignment was in Germany, as it was for many, because we had a lot more of American presence, U.S. soldier presence at that time. And understanding the threat to your, to your question, it was very real because even as a platoon leader went down to the exact intersection, which was outside a hardware store, said this is where your platoon defense will be. Literally, this is where you will set up a defense or go on an offensive if necessary should the Soviets cross into this era. And where I will date myself a little bit old, I was in the Berlin Brigade, which is gone at this time. So the threat was really close, like over that wall potentially. So it was real then, and to some of the points made by my peers earlier, Rich and Mr. Sullivan, uh, the level of competence you had to have to understand at that time you know, the Soviet attack was real there, so you did a recon, you understood it as best you could and the capabilities of what you were going to face in the, bigger, in the broader text as well. And to fast forward a few assignments later, was stationed at the National Training Center well, well before GY This was as a captain the first time. Did a second tour as well, and the, the scenarios were threat braced. Here's what the Krasnogovians is going to look like, kind of, kind of rolled uh, to show what the Soviet attack could be. So our army was training for that as well. Again, building that grit, understanding, and competence. Uh, out of fast-forward, which, well, over 20 years now, um, what I think has changed with a GWAT, transition into coin, out of coin, to large-scale operation where we're at now, are multi-domain threats. And I'm not putting a doc- doctrinal bumper sticker on it. it it's a multi-domain, multi-domain threat. So to take that Lieutenant Brito from 1980-ish, I'll say, who had to understand what takes place on the ground at that place where you're gonna defend if necessary. Now the threats are cyber, EW, you name it. So it, it's more com- com- much more complex, and we need to meet that complexity and build the competence in our, in our troops. So I, I gave you a lot, but I, I do feel comfortable that our Army looked at it as seriously then as it does now. It's broader now, and there's more than one threat. We have a pacing threat, of course, but a multi-domain threat, which we have to continue to train for. Yes,
4: yeah, sir. So my experience was the same as yours, first assignment in Germany, um, going to our general defense positions. and um, and So you go to your general defense position, and then you were expected to understand, well, if the threat came through this axis of advance, this is what you would see first. This is what you were likely to see second, what the time distances were, and so forth um, between the combat reconnaissance patrol and the Uh, forward security element and then the advance guard main body right we all used to have to do that because it was a math problem we used to talk about battlefield calculus was battlefield calculus based on how quickly uh, you could engage the enemy and defeat them and did you have enough ammunition to be able to do that in this amount of time and you had to think through the, the the mathematics of it and I'm not saying that 21st century uh, it would be the same way, but we are saying that there is a math issue and that, that, that science part of warfare is based on an understanding of how a particular threat behaves. We used to call tank table 12 PKO or platoon kills, or PKB rather, platoon kills battalion uh, because that's how the target arrays would come up and they would come up in, in sequence. And it was a math problem and it was a time issue, but it was based on a very specific threat that allowed you to focus in on understanding uh, how fast the enemy was moving uh, on on a particular type of terrain uh, and and what you needed to deal with in terms of of accuracy for tank gunnery. Um, I think there was an institutional side of it and a self-development side of it. So the institutional side was, I think, echelon appropriate. As a cadet, you learned, almost pretty much everybody learned infantry tactics, right? So what a, a Soviet rifle company uh, could do, and you would probably learn up to battalion level. And then as a lieutenant, you would do that and have some understanding of brigade. At company level, you understood up to division. And in the captain's career course, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time, again, getting drilled and quizzed on, on ranges and what a, a regimental artillery group or a division artillery group would look like and what they could bring to bear against you. Uh, But there was a self-development side to it as well and I think that's what differentiated the level of professionalism uh, in the officer corps and NCO corps, warrant officer corps, uh, was who would take what you learned in school and then uh, apply it for what you were observing in the news uh, or what you read, uh, you know, history of the Red Army in the Second World War, would they fight the same way? How did they operate in Afghanistan in the 80s or or, uh, Czechoslovakia in the 60s or whatever? and then you would read the, the other thing that was always kind of neat was the historical fiction, right? We all read Team Yankee in the 80s, uh, Harold Coyle's books. Um, we read Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising. Uh, we read uh, Red Army by uh, Ralph Peters, right? Um, not everybody did, but a lot of people did. And what that did is made the threat kind of real to you, and, and then you understood, well, okay, I had to memorize all this stuff. But what is it? what, it, what would it look like? You know, how do I imagine... The, the, the threat would fight. So I think all those things, that was kind of a, a normal culture. Uh, and I can't speak to how much it was developed in the, in, in the United States at the time, because I was always stationed overseas. But certainly in Germany, it was it was part of the culture.
3: Hmm. Yeah, Lisa, can I add something, and Rich made me think of this, um, really on the theme of competence. I mentioned I had, had two tours at the National Training Center, one at the Joint Readiness Training Center as well. On the first tour, um, we had a Sergeant First Class Vincent. He was a chemical, I think his call sign was 39, if I'm not mistaken. He was a chemical NCO trainer, the chemical trainer for the Battalion tactical Brigade if necessary. But I believe Ian mentioned earlier, Rich, uh, on a previous question, we put everything on the S-2 or the G-2 to understand all levels of threat. But there was nobody better, and he's long since retired now, than this guy that understood the threat capabilities that the enemy could have in the chemical arena. So he had a level of competence that he gained throughout the years to include some professional education that really helped, in this case, he was an OC, so it helped the unit really see how to analyze the enemy above and beyond what the G2, in this case the S2, would provide that battalion. And that really stuck, stuck out to me later on, when, before uh, continuing up the ranks on it's great to have a level of staff competence, which you have to have. It's really good to have a level of deep SME competence. In this case, a chemical NCO might be the S3 or somebody, done to really understand how a capability can be employed. Red team, a true red team. And not, I was going to use a colorful word, not just BS and things like this is what's going to happen. Uh, reaction, counter reaction thing. So it uh, feeds into our doctrine as well, but truly competence just helped. This was in the 80s uh, to understand enemy threat. So, Rich, thanks for prompting me on that. It brought yeah. back some thoughts.
4: Yes, sir.
0: Yeah, Rich, Rich prompted me on a couple of things, too. So the first thing I'll say is I'm an intel guy because I read Red Storm Rising, literally. That's, I read that book, and I was like, that's what I'm, I'm going to do. I think I was in 10th grade, and I, I knew that was what I wanted. Um, I think then I read Red, uh, Hunt for Red October. I wanted to be Jack Ryan. I even worked for the Navy first right? And so my experience was different. And I I started in the mid-90s, so as the, the Cold War was winding down, but but we were still living it in many ways, right? I mean, we were still thinking about what we learned during the Cold War. And as we looked at the threats that existed, we were still thinking about them in, in Cold War terms. Um, you know, from at the time when I worked for the Navy, it was, you know, thinking about some of the same missions that, that they had in the Cold War, right? Um, and so... Rich's point was, was really important when he talked about, I think, the fiction approach to this and the clarity that we had. And I think that's the, that's the difference. The threat was very real in those days. It was very real. You could imagine yourself as part of it, right? You could imagine the balloon going up at any second, and, and suddenly it's on. And you know General Brito and, and, and Rich were talking about going to their, their general defense positions. That's very real. I mean, you know, you see those spots today and you remember them, right? Because they still exist. And that's really, I think, the, the fundamental difference. It's, there, there could be no failure of imagination because you were imagining it constantly. Um, and really that's kind, of, that's kind of where we, I think, are trying to get back to, right? Because the, the threat became so dispersed at a time, right? It was, it was everywhere, it was nowhere. And it was hard to it was hard to totally imagine it, and that that includes in a way even when you were you were downrange. So I didn't spend as much time as my, my colleagues here downrange, but I did spend some time in Afghanistan, and and yeah, it was it was a real threat, but not not in that same kind of way. And that's really the thing that's hard to I think explain, is this notion of a of a threat that's that's all encompassing, um, that's very very capable. Um, And that is is capable of 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 really ruining your day if things don't go right for you and so getting that notion back um, to to a force um, that that was fighting a different kind of war i think is is really important and probably the first step um, to guarding against a failure of imagination and really understanding the threat and and what it can do Um, you know we certainly face some some capable threats in places like iraq and afghanistan but they couldn't control whole domains, right? They couldn't wage effective LISCO with multi-domain capabilities. And the pacing threat today can. Um, some of our other threats can in, in other ways as well. So it's just a it, it's a different mindset and this, this need to guard against the failure of imagination, which which is really the most important lesson from the 9-11 Commission report, guard against a failure of imagination.
3: That's a great point, Ian.
1: You know, you're kind of talking about this threat that you feel that you live. The FBI director came out recently saying, talking about our pacing threat. Is that helping the Americans, whether they're soldiers or not, make this threat a little bit more real?
0: So that's a great, that's a great question. And, and that's the thing that we need to do, right? We need to, we need to make it real and let folks understand it. We don't need to hype it. We don't need to say it's more than it is. Um, but what it is is concerning. And I think um, Director Ray's comments were spot on, right? He talked exactly about what our pacing threat is up to. And again, it's it's this guarding against the failure of imagination. It's it's hard to imagine that there could be a force out there that can match us, right? I mean you have US Army written on the front of your of your, your uniform there. By definition, right? You, you have a belief that you're going to go on any, any battlefield on the planet and you're going to be the best there is. And you, you need that, right? Um, but the adversary believes the same thing and is working toward it. So, so I think education is part of it this, this notion of explaining what the threat is, what it can do. And sometimes you need to have to see it to believe it. Um, I think that's what I learned most. I play war games a lot. I'll be out at Unified Pacific in a couple of weeks. I'm, I play Red all the time. And I can make red very real for blue. And until you see it and experience it, it's not real. And I think if we do this right, if we get threat out there to the force, we make it more real so that when you go out on that field, you know damn sure that because your uniform says US Army, you have that that belief and, and, and you are indeed what you believe you are. And it's got to start with understanding that threat.
4: I think you said something that was Really important, Mr. Sullivan, and that's um, sometimes as Americans we tend to go all one way or all another way, right? So we we hype the threat. You said hype the threat, and I think that's that's a, a brilliant way of, of characterizing it. We can either make somebody 10 feet tall, or we ignore it and say we're not worried about it because we're the U.S. Army, so we can we can beat anybody any any time any place. In actuality, I think our attitude when when we first came in the Army, sir, was um, kind of like a workman-like professionalism, like you said, okay, that's the problem. This is the problem we face. Do you, does everybody understand the problem? Yeah, okay, we understand. Do you really understand the problem? Do you understand what a division artillery group can bring to bear on your platoon battle position? Oh, I didn't understand that. Well, I, yeah, I understand it now, right? I, you, you've made that real for me, right? And I take a historical vignette from operation bagration right or, or something and i show somebody an example of this is how they would do it but you didn't it wasn't hyped it was a recognition that this was serious business and part of being a profession is being able to deal with this very serious problem in a variety of contexts uh and a fundamental understanding of that problem was the baseline off which you operated so you took it very seriously it didn't necessarily keep you up at night although it could every once in a while but um uh, it was more recognition that this is our business, this is the problem we're here to solve, and uh, we all need to be on the same sheet of music.
3: I'm Rich, again, responded to the thought. And it's more than brick-and-mortar training and education. Uh, and I'm overly passionate on training, training, more sets of training, more sets of training. But kind of to the point you brought up, Rich, and in replicating what the enemy can do. And our CTCs do a really, really good job of it. And you have that, whether a platoon leader or a platoon or a battalion commander, that moment of self-discovery, like, this is really real. You know, granted, it's smoke and fake rounds and stuff or miles kills, but this could really happen because I, if I face this threat, it's really real, uh, you, you learn something. Uh, but like many, I, we had our mission rehearsal exercise at uh, the Joint Readiness Training Center for, for Iraq. and hit a simulated IED. So the reality of, you're taken out of the fight for a little while, but the reality of you're dead, your Humvee's gone, so are these guys. It really hit me hard, personally, uh, from a training perspective, but you saw uh, the reality of what could happen. I know when I talk to the Soviets and others, but also the the big learning curve is on our side, as a, a, uh, in this case, an infantry battalion, what do we need to do to defeat this threat? Understanding the threat, defeat the threat. And that can be echelon to any, any capability. But that learning moment really came from hard training, which our Army does well and needs to keep on doing.
2: Yeah, Lisa, that was a great question. And I think great responses from our guests. Um, and some great points made in the previous question as well, kind of laying down your experiences and your motivations for where you are today. Um, and you've gone over in, in great detail here why it's so important um, that we learn about building competence in understanding the threat. But the OE has changed in many ways from the 1980s and the 1990s. So how do we actually build that competence in understanding our threats in today's environment now?
0: So you want me to start? I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the OE, and maybe that, that lays it out. Um, things are more complex for lots of different reasons. General Brito always talk, or already talked about technology and what it, what it means and how fast it's coming. Um, we see a we see an OE writ large um, that is more dynamic and more complex because it has more actors and it has more actors that can impact it from nation-states to groups of nation-states transnational alliances um, large non-governmental organizations individuals right who can can shape an OE Um, what what the oe and what all of this together means is that everything that we see all of the factors that that we look at across whether we want to talk about the dime right diplomat the diplomatic the information the military the economic if if we want to go deeper and talk about Pemizi, what it means is all of that comes faster and more furious than it has in the past and it means that actors have a They have a a more rapid cycle in which they can they can do things and so what it means for us is we need leaders who can adapt to it in a in a quick way in a dynamic way and really in a way that that can accept that sort of confusion accept the state of discomfort that it creates and make the right decisions so so really the the premium on on what it means i think to train the OE, to train the threat who operate within the OE, is to get those leaders who are are comfortable with the uncomfortable, can make rapid decisions, can fail quickly and still recover and, you know, at the end of the day, truly, truly understand what mission command means for the Army and the Joint Force. Um, and that's that sort of would be the start point, I think. I'll, I'll leave it to my now,
3: Ian brings folk. up some, some very good points, and um, an observation since I've been in this command and, and thought about it before, our mind naturally goes to, when you look at the OE, what's the enemy look like? And we're building confidence on the threat, of course, but we're part of that same operational environment. And and Ian kind of touched on a couple of things. So understanding ourselves as a as a unit, individuals, capabilities, vulnerabilities, Um uh, limitations and strengths as well, all part of the operational environment. And you mentioned Matt in the early, early part of the question, what, what's a little different from maybe 1980s, 1990s to now? Also, it, make sure we understand some threats or capabilities that our adversaries might have in 2024 that they didn't 25 years ago. As a lieutenant or even a battalion commander would have never expected the impact of information operations. Not kinetic, but it ruined ruin your day. Uh, cyber capabilities that are out there uh, uas swarming technology that's out there so that has changed my point is staying educated staying ahead of the threats and then on our side of the fence when i say our side looking at the the u.s forces understanding ourselves uh, building the capability to maintain it overmatch all that's part of understanding the the oe is not just the terrain analysis today thanks though
4: Hi, nice, sir. Uh, you and Ian both prompted uh, a thought. So, obviously, the, from our experience, we were we've learned over the last six or seven years uh, working on doctrine um, that the culture has actually shifted towards um, accepting this idea that we can name adversaries by name and then address um, their tactics uh, or their operational approaches in our doctrine. It it really wasn't that long ago that we were not allowed (laughs) uh, or we were discouraged from mentioning uh, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran specifically uh, in our doctrine. It wasn't until the 2017 FM3O and the introduction that we put that out there. We were worried, we, the the royal we uh, at the Combined Arms Center, that we might get told to take that out, like it might be too provocative. and our our discussion at the time with General Lundy and General Perkins was that uh, well, if the Army Chief of Staff is mentioning in testimony and it's uh, going to be mentioned in the next national Defense strategy that these people are being these adversaries are being named by name, then why should we be afraid to do that and that started us down the road of making our doctrine threat informed again like we went through this period between. Uh, sometime in the 1990s and uh, say 2016, 2017, where we really wrote our doctrine just based on what we wanted to do. Like, we just assumed that we could do whatever we wanted to do against whoever we were going to fight because the people we were fighting, as, as Mr. Sullivan said, were not capable of contesting us in the air or space. We were used to being contested on land uh, as a land force and in the information dimension, obviously. Uh, and some people could maybe threaten us uh, via cyberspace, but none of them had access to capabilities that were gonna put friendly forces at risk. And that was what was so different, right? So you do that focus first on large-scale combat operations as kind of a push the culture that way in terms of readiness. But then we became more mature and we actually started focusing in on the tactics, techniques, and procedures of the threat. And so the TRADOC G2, Uh, started writing that series of of threat uh, Army Techniques publications or ATPs that uh, address Russian tactics, North Korean tactics, Iranian tactics, uh, and Chinese tactics. And I think that is a recognition that professionally as a culture that we started to realize that we need to pay attention to that, that we needed to uh, a pretty higher level of, or develop a higher level of humility in terms of all those changes that, that you laid out, sir, right? Um, because each of these threats has capabilities to do things to us that we did to other people with impunity for 20 or 25 years. And I think that's a big change. And, and, and so that cultural shift is part of that professional shift too, uh, This sense of humility uh, that we need to understand um, how dangerous the world is, what, what can be done. Uh, and then other people have been studying us. And if they've been studying us, and we really need to be studying that.
3: That's a great point, Rich. Yep.
1: So Matt talked about the big idea of this podcast episode, and I want to add a little piece to that. So the new big idea, competence inside the Army profession includes understanding the threat you face relative to your echelon formation or assignment. So I want to talk about that last piece. What are your expectations for different experience levels in understanding the threat? Whether officer, NCO, General Britta, you said whatever, compo earlier in the podcast.
3: Yeah, yeah that, that's a good one, Lisa. If I, if I could start off with a little broader context, you know, our chief, and it's, and it's pretty consistent with the previous chief's imperatives or priorities as well, but currently, uh, four focus areas assigned to help drive where our Army's going war fighting, continuous transformation, delivering combat ready forces, and strengthening the Army profession being the last one. And that underpins all the others, they're connected. It just so happens that last one's assigned to trade after tackle. Uh, so to get to your actual, your, your question, uh, the entire army, and, and I didn't say comp one, two or three, the entire army enlisted, non, well, young enlisted, non-commissioned officers, warrant officers, officers and civilian professionals need to be on board where we're going and strengthening the army profession or i would say the army profession and supporting all the other uh the other three focus areas that i mentioned up front now uh, unique to a trader has to do is the professional military education needs to be focused uh, directed and ensure that a soldier whether it's a pfc staff sergeant captain major lieutenant comes out of his or her respective schooling and education brick and mortar education but a level of competency that's expected at their rank, And I'm going to give an example of career-long learning as well. So we're taking this opportunity to look at all of our PME that we offer, that we as in TRADOC, and nest that with what will continue to be strengthened and built upon by the receiving unit, Forces Command in this, in this case, or whatever the unit's going to be. So there's no gap in building that level of proficiency, understanding, and whatever your skill set is, or, in this case, understanding the threat. So as an example, and take this very seriously as a command and expect our Centers of Excellence to do it and reinforce by said battalion commander, whatever battalion someone may join. Uh, So just as an example, a 2nd Lieutenant going to Infantry Bullock will learn a level of threat. Uh, I'll expect that he or she will learn the next echelon of that in the Captain's career course. And then when they go off to the uh, Command General Staff College, even another level of it. So it's to continue along continued in development. And I give that maybe as a poor example of how everybody needs to be on board to embrace this level of development, not only in their skill set, which is important, but in this case, you know, tied to the theme of the podcast, a true understanding of what the enemy capabilities and threat capability can be. And as an institution, brick and mortar institution, there are things we can do to help that. you know whether it's playing cards, podcasts, uh, a series of apps that we have to help educate, especially the young soldier that learns differently today, how can we stay ahead of that? And as an institution as well, largely through the work of the Combined Norm Center at Leavenworth, feed into the scenarios that our combat training centers helps forces command, ensure that the threat is really replicated well in the warfighting exercises. So that's how we get at this. So the mindset that you might've had 25, 30 years ago, needs to fast forward into 2024, and that's on me and beyond. And use PME to validate what's expected of a leader or soldier, and, of, and reinforced uh, through standards, discipline, and you name it, in their unit of assignment. And I'll stop there. Thank you. So when uh, when my team sat down and we were
0: given the task, uh, as the chief um, rolled out his focus areas, and one of them was, what are we going to do to get threat information into PME, into training across the army? And we kind of sat down and we thought about, all right, what is it you need to learn at, at all levels? And, you know, at, at the base level, I think we talked about identifying adversaries' key equipment, understanding that equipment's capabilities, understanding how it all came together into a, a, an approach to warfare, right, at the, at the tactical level. Right at the operational level and at, at the strategic level, depending depending where you are, right? Understanding how it is they're going to fight at echelon. Um, so those those are the three things that we we kind of we kind of focused on. Um, I was glad to hear uh, General Brito talk about things like the playing cards and our apps and our websites and videos, um, our threat minutes videos, for example. But but one of the things we're doing as we as we take the chief's guidance to heart. Um, we thought about the way we're going to take some of our other systems, our landing zones, for example, which is where you can go get the best threat information at the unclassified level on the adversaries. Um, we have them for both Russia and for China and sort of re- recast them a bit. And so what we're doing as a G2 team is we're actually laying out the question that you, you, you asked. What do you need to know if, if you're uh, you know, at the tactical level, if you're a lieutenant, if you're a, a sergeant, Uh, and and, you know a a soldier who's part of a a fire team even right here's what we think you you need to know you jump up to the next level you know you're you're at the battalion level here's what you need to know and we we actually have cool little icons that show you along the way right from wearing your your battle dress up until you're a general right wearing the dress uniform and you click on it and it it kind of has the information that you need we even go further into training developers Right? Who will need even more information as they try to figure out how to how to make this all real? So, so I think it's a I think it's a big question, but you know at at its base, I think it's really about understanding the enemy and and how they fight, and you know to to be simple, I'd say you probably need to understand your own level and at least one up, right? Maybe two, but at least one, um, and we'll we'll help lay that out. Yeah, that keeps us from having to try to eat the elephant all at one time because we've got
4: four elephants out there. Yeah. <laughs> more, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more than yeah. that, right, but at least four, but a herd of elephants that we need to, to consider. Um, I think getting in line with what you said, sir, the, uh, the, we, we expect people to read. Um, so we can create all the products in the world, but there's got to be forcing functions. So I think professional military education and then leader development programs can be the forcing functions, but, you know, all leaders have to be involved. making this important and we focus i think um you know if you know your brigade is going to be rotating to eastern europe or the korean peninsula or centcom or something i mean that should tell you what maybe what you should be focusing on for this next period of time in terms of uh, becoming competent uh, about the threats that you're likely to face and it shouldn't be viewed at um hey, this is the area we're going to be in. It should be, hey, what's worst case? If I'm over there on a the rotation and the balloon goes up uh, and uh, the torrents fails, then we're going to be fighting. So this is who we're going to be fighting, and this is what we need to be able to expect. And that's where the visualization uh, that we discussed earlier, I think, comes into play. Um, the threat doctrine is, is is very useful in that regard. You know, we have the decisive action training environment, but it's this massive menu of things. How do you focus it down into the specific adversary in a specific context? I think the other piece is uh, the doctrine we write for ourselves, not about the threats. I think can be helpful too. Right? There's some things that we've put in there uh in terms of the multi-domain operations concept that we call the imperatives things that we need to be able to do and three of them are related to this topic i think specifically the first is seeing yourself seeing the enemy and understanding the operational environment right and again it's not understanding the history of the world it's the operational environment that you're most likely uh, going to be conducting operations in the other is accounting for being under continuous observation and all forms of enemy contact if you don't understand what the threat can do to us, um, then you don't understand how those forms of contact uh, are are going to be manifesting themselves at your particular echelon, so I think that's important. Um, And the last is accounting for the effects of operations on units and leaders. Um, Were we to be conducting operations against an adversary turned enemy, what can they do to us? And what is that going to look like over time? And have we thought that through before we get to that, that point? Um, because I think those things are all, that all prevents that that psychological impact of being shocked and surprised. Well, I didn't expect this to tab- to happen. You know, I don't want to be Task Force Smith, uh, at, at Suwon, you know, all of a sudden discovering that the North Korean army has tanks, right? And, and so that, that um, I think, gives us, you know, some hints and some ways that leaders from, you know, the highest levels down to the lowest uh, helps us prepare. The other is, um, you know, the the chief expects us uh, to write. We've got the Harding program, right? I think that's what it's called, the Harding. Um, One of the things that was the norm uh, was that when we wrote our professional articles, we generally would write them somehow informed by the enemy. This is what we want to do. This is what the enemy tactics would be. So this is my good idea that, that we want to discuss or my big issue that I've been pondering in my spare time uh, that I want to share with the rest
3: of the force, and I think that fits in with the chief's intent pretty well. You know, Rich, also, um, and, and it's not just trade out the Army, and uh, would support outside of the Army as well, is really learning stuff from what's going on in Ukraine, uh, training in other parts of the world, and weaving that back into what helps us as an army. Not just the education, brick and mortar education at the uh, schools, and it takes a little time to weave that back into a program of instruction, but it doesn't take as long to weave it into a training scenario at the CTC if I know I'm going to deploy here. Or uh, as a matter of fact, I talked to a friend of mine, I'll leave the name and unit uh, unnamed, knows he's going to Poland, um, soon just to support some training and, and uh, of course as a way of the threats in that, that part of the world so our ability to spin quick, non-doctrinal term uh, based off real lessons and what we can learn and apply for them, not just put them in a book somewhere has uh, is, is been helping our I army. Mean, I challenge any leader out there regardless of your rank uh, to, to capitalize on those things and it could be like Rich mentioned through articles that have been written uh, things put in the green book or glossy somewhere, learn from it, because it's, it's quick, and it's, it's, it's uh, relevant as well.
0: Kamika, something else Rich said sort of intrigued me a little bit as well, where he talked about reading about both red and blue together, and I think that's an important point, and I think it gets at, at a couple of things, and I think the first is the notion that, that understanding ourselves and understanding our adversaries really are, are a core task for, for all military professionals, be they they military or civilian. Um, A little while ago, I was playing in one of the war games that I play in, and I was interviewed by OSD, who interviewed the red commander. And they asked me a really important question. The first question they asked me was, how good is blue? And so that was a question I didn't want to answer, right? And so I tap danced a lot. Um, And then they said, okay, I got it. How good was was blue? And and the answer is, blue is still thinking through things. Right? because they were so busy in, in just the day-to-day, they have not really had that much time to think about red. Um, at the end of the, the questioning, and they talked to me for about an hour, the last question they asked me was the, really the one that, that sort of blew me away. It was, how much better are you than red really is? And Rich point is, Rich's point is what I, what I answered. I said, I'm probably better than, than red because I, I understand blue as much as I understand red you know, you could have made me blue commander and I could have fought the blue fight because I read doctrine. I understand it. I understand multi-domain warfare, JADC2, how it works. But I also understand intelligentized warfare. I understand China's new doctrine and how they're developing it and where they want to go, that their multi-domain warfare is slightly different than ours, things like that. And so putting the two together really shows you what I think a core professional truly should be.
2: Gentlemen, this has been a great conversation talking doctrine talking threat talking training before we end though do you have any parting thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners
3: not knowing the entire audience demographics but assuming it's troops with soldiers or civilian professionals as well is uh, don't take shortcuts you know and and i can't, i can't, i really can't overstate this quite frankly you know put the energy into it put the passion into it Put the, the the rigor and understanding the threat and just training. Uh, I'll take some risk on quoting our current soldier media of the army about being brilliant at the basics. He said this down at the maneuver conference a few months back, and I think you can expand that basics to understand this enemy threat as well. Not only not to shoot your weapon, put on a tourniquet, or do something, but under, understanding this enemy threat, which is part of why we we train uh, to fight and win. So. Uh, for those who are in the TRADOG patch, you know, we have to continually improve, enhance our PME, professional military education, for our, for our Army, uh, and that's our job. And then working with operational force, Forces Command, and others as well, to validate the threat that they're training on. That's our job as well, it's a total Army effort. And what I'm very proud that the team is doing collectively uh, through the G2 and others, is uh, opportunities for folks to get smarter on their own, some self-study opportunities. And that's, that's one of the pillars in our education as well. You can get brick-and-mortar training, operational training, some self-development. And that, that, that quite frankly, is going to help you get better at fulfilling that competency block. And I would offer that up to anybody out there. So for those listening, whether it's a private lieutenant or a first sergeant today, to build on those three things so that when called upon and who knows when it's going to be, we're ready for it. And apply it as a leader, noncommissioned officers as well. And I, am pretty confident. I'm, I'm an optimist to the end of the day. Thank you.
0: I guess I'll leave with uh, with two things that I'd I'd say to the to the force out there, particularly the the young soldiers and the the young leaders. The first thing I'd ask you to do is to um, as you sit back and you think about yourselves and you think about your your role um, in the army, your role in in the fight if it comes to it. I'd ask you to be able to, to educate yourself uh, both through what you can do with PME and, and, and in terms of, of self-learning, so that at the end of the day, you can close your eyes and visualize that fight. So you can see it unfurl in time and space, understand where the key elements are, what you're gonna need to do. You're never gonna get it exactly right, but by taking the time to do that, you'll think about it um, and you know if and when the time comes you won't be surprised because of the the thought process that you went through this is what i tell everybody who who plays with war games with me i need you to be able to close your eyes and visualize the fight over time and space second thing i'll say is whatever you use for your spotify playlist right now go and put green days know your enemy on the list and you will not be sorry do you know the enemy? And it will come over and over and over again. And when you answer yes, uh, you'll you'll be there. I didn't think I was going to get something added to my Spotify list on. <laughs> oh,
4: it's audience. a great
0: song. I have the whole G2 hook.
3: I'm glad I don't have Spotify, but I'll get it today.
4: <laughs> the um, so one prefers to develop your knowledge in, in in school and via training rather than the hard way during combat. And I think essentially that's what we're we're talking about here today. Um, so there's no substitute for having the drive to, to self-develop, to read what other people do, to pay attention to current events around the world when you're not in school. Um, and I think the the thing that we owe um, the force, all of us, uh, in leadership position, is to pay what we know forward. You know, right? I mean, culture is transmitted. It's not inherited. Uh, and so we we need to set good examples as leaders, and then we need to pay that forward to our subordinates because that, that's never over. The education piece is never over. Uh, and and as, as Mr. Sullivan said, the, the threats are always adapting. They're changing and evolving just like we are. And so you're never done with this. And this is something that, that, that's what makes it an obligation for us as, as professionals.
3: Good point, Rich. Hey, Lisa, Matt, I want to thank you too for this uh, opportunity today. And although I know we focus on understanding the threat This is very much part of our Army profession. And we've had one for 248 years, we'll have one for another 248 years. But everybody on the net today has an aspect of that, has some ownership of it, regardless of the unit you're serving in, the rank, component doesn't matter. It's part of being our our professional, our Army profession. We've always fought and won, we're gonna continue to fight and win. But understanding the threat of today or the threat from 15 years from now which gets closer all the time because of the technology, just builds into the grit required of our Army profession. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Yes yeah, was great. Thanks.
1: Just like writing New Doctrine is a team effort, breaking Doctrine takes a team. Without the crew and Special Doctrine Division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you the show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain White Harper and 29 Pixel Studios. Please don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates on new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and publications. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Becker, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.